From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we speak with National Public Radio CEO Yarl Mohn. And after that, Kate Harringer joins us from Wake Forest University to discuss political discourse in America. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. It is hardly an exaggeration to suggest the position of CEO at National Public Radio has been somewhat a revolving door. However, Jarl Mohn believes he possesses the vision to put an end to the hemorrhaging at the top of NPR. He is the fifth permanent CEO since 2009, and we are honored to have him at The Public Morality. Jarl Mohn, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. It's great to, it's great to be here, Byron. Um, as NPR's eighth CEO in nine years, I would imagine your first order of business was to establish uh, a culture of stability. What have you done? <laughs> well, the, probably the, the greatest contribution I can give to that thing, to, to stability, is the fact that it made a commitment to our staff, to the board of directors, to our member stations, that I would stay a minimum, a minimum of five years. Um, and so we're in just over two years now um, to that commitment. So I think that goes a long way. Um, um, I'm doing this because I love public radio, all forms, whether it's the news talk stations or the music stations you know, like WSNC. Uh, um, and uh, I come out of a radio background. And so I'm doing this because, uh, I, I, not because I need a job, it's because this is something that I'm very passionate and committed to. Mm-hmm. For, for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with your background, can, can you give us the Reader's Digest version oh, of sure. who you are before <laughs> you arrived at the NPR? <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm sure none of your listeners are familiar with my background. Um, I began uh, in the radio, uh, I had a radio career starting when I was 15 as a disc jockey, and then I became program director, uh, general manager. I owned some stations in Texas and Kentucky. I was in the cable TV business, MTV, VH1. I ran those in the 80s, and then I created a cable TV channel, E, Entertainment Television, 1990, and I ran that for nine years. And then I got into venture capital, and in one of my little not-for-profit activities, I became very interested in public radio and was on the board and a supporter of Southern California Public Radio in L.A. In preparing for this interview, I have two quotes from two former presidents. I'm sure you're familiar with both, but the first one comes from Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Were it left up to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I shall not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is the closing line from Lincoln's uh, Gettysburg Address, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Taking both statements into account, obviously not calling for the abolishment of government, but <laughs> assess where we are today and, 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 let, and let newspapers be emblematic of the larger journalism. Journal, journalism writ large. Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's one of the things and one of the reasons that I love public radio, uh, basically, and one of the reasons I'm committed to it. Because I think generally speaking... Um, in the aggregate, 
journalism is, is going through a very tough time. Certainly newspapers, if we're, if we're going to be specifically talk about those, everybody knows the economics of the newspaper business and how tough it's been. I think in every community across the country, newspapers have, have provided a remarkable public service. And it's really sad to see that business having changed. But there are other um, forms of journalism as well that have changed. Broadcast, local broadcast television news. That's really changed. In an effort to get ratings, a lot of the many stations are focusing on crime and fires and extreme weather. Um, in L.A., we have the car chase. That's the big <laughs> hot thing. All the local TV stations cut in. Cable television news, in a lot of cases, become very ideological or very sensational. Um, you know, so public public radio, I think, has really uh, filled a really remarkable place in journalism. It's become very, very important. I think, uh, and there are a handful of others. We're, not, we're certainly not the only ones uh, around the world. You have the BBC, New York Times, Wall Street Journal does a great job, and Washington Post under Jeff Bezos is, um, I think, doing some in, incredible j journalism as well. And then longer form stuff like The Atlantic, The New Yorker. So there's, there are ways out there of getting information, but it's not like it's not like the good old days. I'm sound like a really old guy here where in, in almost any city in the United States, you could open up the daily paper and you could know what's going on in the world. Well, you, you, you touched on something I want to I continue with that you, you, you talked about ratings. And um, ratings were not always uh, a criteria for news. I mean, we, historically, news has always lost money. Mm -hmm. uh, but once, once it lost um, it had to turn a profit like every other department, that really does change the news. And so it sort of changed the culture. So now, because we, before the nightly news comes on, we already, we pretty much know the, you know, the, the, the top five stories of the day. Yep. How does NPR compete in a culture like that? You know, it, it, in, in an odd way, it's actually an advantage. And that's because so many people are moving away from the style of journalism that we do, we haven't really had to necessarily change um, in, in major ways. We like to do what we call explanatory journalism. Um, so we're providing some context. We're providing some analysis of what's happening. Not just, you know, for lack of a better word, commodity news. You know, the who, what, where. Um, somebody did this at this particular time. You can get that stuff anywhere. You know, on my smartphone here, I get alert, alerts from probably five, six different sources. It's a little disconcerting. Because sometimes I'll get five alerts for the same <laughs> the same event. I think, man, that happened five times. <laughs> um, so, and and many of the things I get alerts on, I'm I'm not particularly interested in details on. It's just it, I know now I know what happened. Um, I'm fascinated. This morning, Bob Dylan's uh, picked up the uh, the, the Nobel prize, Nobel Prize for yes. literature. Now, I probably want to read a little bit more about that. But there are other things, you know, I read about on alerts that I'm not. So there's this whole notion of skim and dive that uh, is a term of, uh, in the industry now. People skim a lot of stuff, and then there are a handful of things that are very interesting to them, and they dive. And we think our role in, in the universe nationally and internationally is, is providing that analysis. And I know a lot of our local news talk stations want to do that for local stories. So we think, it's a, we think that's a real benefit. We're not trying to compete with these other people on their turf. We think that's a big mistake. We think we we need to compete uh, by doing what people expect us to do and what, what historically we've been good at. But there is a lure, is it not, with, to that gravitational pull? And I'm thinking specifically about the 2016 uh, presidential election, right. which is 
let's just say it's different than what than what we've grown accustomed we'll, to. We'll use the word dynamic. Di- dynamic is a good word. <laughs> oh, yeah. but, but but there's a gravitational pull that you have yeah. to fight against, is it not? Oh, absolutely. Because it's it. Somebody called it the other day. I I heard it. I couldn't believe it. I, I, the Jerry Springer of elections. I mean, it it's it's. Um, it's sensationalistic. It's a circus. I've been having a conversation with with a friend about, and this started, you know, back at the beginning of the primary season. Is this election a good thing or a bad thing? And um, nine months ago, my point of view was, as weird and as wacky as it is, this is an amazing civics lesson for everybody. I'm now at the point where I'm not so sure that it's 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 the greatest thing in the world because. It has devolved into something, um, I mean, significantly beyond, you know, a, a, a pointed conversation about different points of view. Uh, it's not that, right. which is what I think it should be. It's not Hamilton and Jefferson sitting down, carving out, okay, are we going to have this economic plan where we're going to put the capital? It's not, yeah. it's not that conversation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you know, I remember back in the 1990s uh, when um, – the Republicans took over Congress for the first time in, in nearly 40 years or whatever that was. And there was a big push um, to defund NPR. Mm-hmm. And um, they sort of portrayed it as the equivalent uh, to Fox News in that it was carrying water for the left and Fox News was carrying for the right. But the only problem was it was doing it with the public's money. How do you, in this light, respond to charges like that? Well, First, I would say, even predating my coming to NPR, uh, a lot of those um, criticisms have have really been moderated. I I don't hear that as much, anywhere near as much as I used to. I think a lot of it comes from, I've I've spent some time thinking about it, the heritage of NPR. It started back in the early 70s during the Vietnam War. And so I do think there was a a bit of that mentality. But over the years, as, as... People have been working in the organization that are really solid journalists that really believe in, you know, fair, fact-based journalism and news. I think that's kind of every year in terms of a perception declined. I spend a fair amount of time lobbying, and I talk to a lot of congressmen and senators of both parties. And generally speaking, not universally, I don't want to misrepresent here, but even some very conservative Republicans really look to NPR and think of us as being, um, you know, a very fair organization. We may cover things that they don't like, so, but our point of view is always: we are going to be fair about it. We're we're not going to we're not going to try to do gotcha. We we want to talk about what happened. We we want to talk about the facts, and I think I think we've made a lot of progress in, in that regard. When I talk to friends who are uh, business people, say, and they're conservative, and they 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 bring up this notion that we're very liberal. The first thing I say is, well, here's my business card. We've been friends for years. You have to do me a favor. I want you to listen for two hours to us, make sure it's NPR programming. And if you hear something that you think is, is um, in a, you know, a liberal point of view, call me. Um, now, I will say on any given story, we're not, we, we don't do every time we do any newscast or any story – you know, tell both sides of the story at that at that point. But you know, generally speaking, over a period of time, you're going to hear a wide range of opinions and points of view that that can help the listener inform their own decision. Now, related to that, I, I asked um, several people that I informed them that I was going to be interviewing you, and mm-hmm. so uh, 
I asked for questions. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the most interesting came um, from a listener, and, and uh, here's, what he's, here's what he wants me to ask you. Sure. Related, related to this subject. NPR's budget is only 5% tax-funded. Why does NPR fight vehemently to continue the small subsidy? Conservatives view this as being coerced to support certain opinions, which they believe, uh, which they disbelieve and abhor, in the words of Jefferson. If NPR were right of center, I'm sure liberals would see the justice in replacing the 5% tax subsidy with a few additional voluntary pledges. Well, first, um, there's, a, there's a lot in the question. The first thing is we don't get 5% of our budget from uh, the government. Actually, in terms of uh, what we get at NPR directly, um, money comes from Congress to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Corporation for Public Broadcasting allocates some money to public television and some money to local public radio. And uh, the number nationally for radio is about $110 million for the entire country. Um, and that is... A plethora of stations, right? That's every, I mean, almost every, not not every, but almost every station um, that's a public station. And it has to do with how big your audience is and how big the market is. And what's really interesting there is um, if you're a large station, let's say in New York or Los Angeles, it might represent 7 or 8% of your total budget. If you're a small station, um, you're, in, you're in Paducah, Kentucky. Um, you're in... Um, you know, Boise, Idaho, or actually even smaller markets, it might be 23% of your budget. Um, so it's really important that, that that money goes to the stations, particularly the smaller the station, the more rural the station, the smaller the community, it's, it's more important. So we lobby on behalf of the stations, not on ourselves. Because uh, I get my budget's not 5% not of my budget. I think it's about a, a, between 1% and 1.5% of my budget comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Now, stations can buy programming from us. They can buy as much as they want or as little as they want. So some of that money goes from Congress to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to the station. Station may spend, may end up buying more programming from us. But we really lobby on behalf of the stations because uh, we think public radio does a great community service, whether it's, you know, WSNC playing jazz for this community or you know, a whole handful of stations across the country that are doing good local and regional news. We think it's important because it's back to your original question about the newspapers. Not many people are doing it. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking with Yara Mon, the CEO of uh, National Public Radio. Um, how does, since you mentioned newspapers, I, I will continue with that. Uh, investigative journalism is going the way of the Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> How do you? How does NPR um, uh, respond in, in that light? Because I mean, that, that's to me, in my opinion, that is one of the big pieces about the decline of newspapers mm -hmm. is that investigative piece, which is central to to everybody else who's doing news. Investigative journalism is very important. Um, a lot of people have cut back on it, and it's it, it's pure, it's an economic decision because it takes a long time. Uh, to do these reports, and then you don't end up having, in the case of radio, a long story or a long series, or same thing in the case of television uh, or a newspaper. So that's the first thing a lot of people cut. And we, there's, no, there's no guarantee every, every story is going to end up being Woodward and Burns. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> very few do, uh, or very few turn out that you're, you're going to find out what you thought you were going to find out. So it's 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 a very, very risky investment. But we believe in it. We still have an investigative unit. Um 
we still do a lot of coverage uh, where others have cut back. And then we also work with others like ProPublica. And uh, that's pretty much all they do. And we partner with them on a lot of things, whether it be the story about uh, the stories about the American Red Cross and how was the money spent in Haiti. Um, that was something, you know, we, we spent a lot of time and money on and worked with, with them on. So we believe in that. We agree. And we think there's – and there are a few other things like Frontline, the PBS series, documentary series. They do a lot of investigative stuff. But there's so little of it out there. We're committed to it. Did you see, is that something that needs to perhaps be under the nonprofit realm uh, at this point to make work? Because it's if you, if you have, like you just said, ProPublica and Frontline, is, is that the way to grow investigative journalism? Because I would argue we need more of it than less of it. I agree. I agree. There are a lot of people that even think that news is going that way, and I hope, um, I hope they're wrong. Uh, because I think we need to have a lot of – there, there's, only, there's only so much not-for-profits can do. So I think people are going to find a way to do good journalism. If everybody's chasing sensationalism or ideological approaches, I think ultimately it's going – I think it's going to fail. And some people are – they're going to make a marketing and a, 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 you know, a branding decision that they want to stand for something that means something. So I hope it's not all there, although it does present a great opportunity for us. But certainly the organizations that seem to be doing the most of it right now are organizations like us, ProPublica, PBS, Frontline. But the New York Times still does a great job, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. And I think there are a handful of others that are um, doing really wonderful work. And I think, I hope, I hope others will be inspired to do it. Speaking of the New York Times, I was um – really struck, oh, about um, two weeks ago on Morning Edition where they had, um, and his name right now is escaping me, they had the editor of the New York Times. Dean. Dean. Yep. And, um, and they took, they raised the question on Morning Edition about the New York Times deciding to, uh, on, on its front page, now it's an opinion page, on its front page above the fold, right. uh, saying that Donald Trump lied, mm-hmm. which in many respects, is is almost new territory in, in, in some it respects. Is. And it I, is. I, I mean, so, I mean, obviously I, I, I'm not asking you to defend what NPR did or defend it, but how do you feel about that in general? Is, does that sort of cross a line journalistically? You know, I've had long conversations with our senior VP of news. First, I need to uh, articulate that I'm the CEO, and so in a, in a sense, in the, in the newspaper model, I'm the publisher. Right. So there's a there's a firewall between what I do. Even though they work for me, I don't have any control. Over exactly. That. Okay. So just to stipulate that, but you know I have a great working relationship with our senior VP of news, and you know the, the question has come up. A lot of people have asked us, you know, why don't you just call Donald Trump a liar? And our point of view has been always it's different than the New York Times, um, and it, we've kind of come to this over time. It's if we point out every time he or, or Hillary Clinton, and we did fact-checking. I mean, during the debates, it's amazing. We had nine – we had seven million people come to our fact-checking um, after the, you know, the first debate. Mm-hmm. Seven million people came just – we had the entire transcript. And 20 percent of them – this tells you everything you need to know about NPR listeners. 20 percent of them, 1.4 million people read all 44 pages of the, with our annotations. We had 23 people annotating. So we're doing fact-checking on both of them. And in many cases, it's not 
it's not a black or white issue. This was true. This was false. It's like, well, that's you, you've, anybody that's read read any of these fact checking sites, including ours, would say, well, that was mostly false, or that was mostly true. Right. Um, but I think you can say, you know, these things were said and they were not true, um, and and they said it rep- repeatedly. I don't think you have to use the word. And it, it the second realization I've had as I was thinking about why is it why is it that word is so problematic. And it occurred to me that in polite conversation, if you and I are having a conversation, Byron, and you tell me something that I know is just absolutely not true, and we're, we're good friends, but we may not be like best friends, I, but we're, we know each other well socially, I'm not gonna say, Byron, you, you're, you're a liar. I'm gonna say, well, is that really true? You know, mm-hmm. I may call you on it, but I don't think I'm gonna, I think there's something really emotionally charged about that word. And in polite company, we don't use it. And then I was thinking, in journalism, have we ever used the word? And I haven't done a lot of research on it, but the one place that it does seem to come up is he lied under oath. But that's, you know, really where we, where we see it. Well, we have, we have a name for that. It's called perjury. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. I, I, I guess I'm wondering, I guess underneath my question, my initial question is the fact that is it our job in, in the larger realm of journalism, at least on, on the front page. Now, maybe in the editorial, that's something different. But on yeah. the front page, is it our job to assign motive to an individual's words? No, I don't think so. And I, yeah. I don't think so. No, I think, I think we it, – there's a whole range, and there's so many different opinions on this. But our point of view is our job is to report facts. Um, we can interview people and have them opine, give their opinion, but we don't give our opinion. We can analyze things. We can try to reach a conclusion about what it means. But, you know, I can only speak for us. And I'm not suggesting that all journalism should be this way Mm -hmm. because there's a whole range. There's a different world out there, whether you have Fox News or whether you're Vice Media or whether it's the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, or the Drudge Report or Huffington Post. There, There are a million variations. We think our role is to provide data, to provide facts, um, provide some analysis, provide some context, and we hope our our users and our listeners are intelligent and they think through these things and they come to their own conclusions. It, it, when you're saying that, it reminds me of something my father used to say to me. He would not say that we were lying, but he would say it sounds like we have a loose association with the truth. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very nice way of saying it. <laughs> my mother, on the other hand, this is whenever I would forget, I'd say I, I wanted to say something or I was going to bring something up and I go, oh, I can't remember. I can't remember what I was going to say. My mother, since I was a little kid, would say, oh, that must have been a lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, your mother, my father, we should have them working for the New York Times. Because <laughs> soften it up a little bit. Um, why do you think, well, you touched on it earlier, but so why do you think NPR has this reputation of being a, a bastion of liberal orthodoxy? I, again, I, I said I think... I think that goes back to the history, you know, the birth of NPR, which occurred during the Vietnam War, where we were covering, you know, the, you know, the protests and the, the marches on Washington and, and things of that sort. And we very – I haven't studied enough, but I suspect, I suspect, don't know it, that that may have been true back then. We really work hard not to be that. The perception lingers. It's not as strong as it once was. I think many people look to us for – for the facts, and they want to know. They want to know we're not there with a with a point of view. We're gonna we're gonna 
give you the background. We're going to give you the context. And we want people that are really good thinkers that just don't want the headlines. Well, I'll admit my bias here that I am an avid NPR listener. I knew I liked you, Byron. And supporter. Uh, uh, But, you know, I was just having a joke yesterday on Facebook, and I said, you know, one of the great things about Facebook is that without it, I would never know there were so many crackpot sources that people rely on for news. And then someone wrote sort of snarky, like NPR. I'm just, whoa. I mean, how, I mean, how does it get? How does it get there? And I was just wondering what if you had any idea how it how it. Well, I think there are people that think that you know, even people I know when I took the job, uh, because I'm a business guy, I have a lot of conservative uh, business friends, and a number of them um, are very conservative, and you know, we're kind of, you know, kidding me about it, and. I said, hey, I just challenge you. Listen. Listen. And if you listen for a couple of hours, don't just listen for 10 minutes. Listen for a couple hours. Call me and tell me what you think is really off base. One of my most conservative friends called me um, about – by the way, I think he was the only person that did. He said – and this is the most obscure story, and it it, it upset me for a completely different set of reasons. He said, you were doing a story about the minimum wage in Switzerland, and – you didn't, and you had a business person on talking about why this was a bad thing in Switzerland, but you didn't have, um, no, you had, you had people on saying why it was a bad thing, uh, but you didn't have a business person on. And I was, my response was, why are we talking about the minimum wage in Switzerland? What was, why would we even do that story? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've given a lot of people this challenge. They haven't taken it. And, um, and I do think in some cases, it, it's if, if there's a story that they, you know, they, they hear a story and they don't particularly like it because something was critical or the facts, uh, you know, might not foot with the way they think of the world. It's, you know, almost in many cases later that day we have um, another take on the the same story. We're trying to provide, you know, a full picture. If you're just joining us, we are talking with the R. Mullen, CEO of National Public Radio. And and just on that last um, response, is there a line where NPR... Uh, might err on the side, for lack of a better word, false equivalency on an issue this, uh, to avoid those charges of bias. And, and for example, it's well documented the Republican Congress uh, used obstruction as a political tool uh, with, with President Obama's agenda. Um, and, but, the, but the response is, well, Democrats have done similar. And so it's that need to, to create that false, uh, many times false equivalency when sometimes it's not warranted, but do you feel that pressure? That's really a hot topic in journalism today, this whole notion of false equivalency. So if it, on any particular topic, whether we're going to talk about global warming, where, you know, you have this huge body of scientists who say, you know, global warming is real and it's been caused by human beings. And then you have this other group saying, OK, maybe global warming is real, but we don't think that it was, it's been caused by human beings. Um, do we need to cover both sides of the issue or any issue um, um, equally? And the answer to that is no, we do not. We need to be fair. But each argument, and each one's different, whether we're talking about Congress, you know, with the Democrats obstructionists, with the Republicans obstructionists, whether we're talking about global warming, whether we're talking about um, creationism. You, you can pick up, you know, you can talk about any, any one of these elements, um, fiscal monetary policy, you know, there are some things that are that are simply a matter of opinion, and and they may be equally divided. 
And the, the toughest part, I think, of running the newsroom for our news folks is knowing we always want to be fair. We always want to have the facts. We always want to talk about what happened. We always want to have differing points of view. But it's not a binary. Either, you know, is there false equivalency or is there not? There's a whole range of saying we want to spend exactly the same amount of time on argument A as argument B. That's, that could be false equivalency. Or we want to recognize that this is an argument out there. We don't happen to think it is um, as strong an argument. Um, we don't think it is backed by the facts as much. And so maybe I'm, I'm making these numbers right. up. This is a purely hypothetical here. We talk about that 10% or 15%, not 50%. Um, but because it's a point of view that many people have, we want to make sure that we, we have the marketplace of ideas. We think you know, people come to NPR not to hear an ideology. I think there are people that come to us for an ideology, but I think most of our listeners, most of the people that come to us know they're going to get a pretty complete story if they listen a long time. Just about anything in the world, anything going on in the world, they're going to they're gonna learn each side of that story. Uh, what is the central mission uh, of NPR? And, and given that, give us a current assessment of where you think you are with that central mission. Okay. Um, our central mission primarily is to be uh, a news-gathering and storytelling organization. We do lots and lots of stuff, but at our heart, we're a news organization, we're a journalism organization, and we want to not just cover the story and you know what happened and who did it, but why did it happen, what does it mean, is there a historical context, um, and do a certain degree of analysis. That's part one. Part two is, that's what we say it's um, uh, necessary but not sufficient. We want to make sure we tell it in a way that's an interesting story and the way we can get a more diverse audience, whether it's uh, younger people, millennials, people that historically might not have listened to public radio. What we try to do, and it's a bar we set for ourselves, and sometimes we hit it and sometimes we don't, is to make sure we tell it in a really interesting and engaging way so people that might not want to hear the story are fascinated by it. And it's not a matter of you know, the immediate reaction. Some people say, oh, you're dumbing it down. No. My favorite example is the subprime mortgage meltdown, which led to the you know, financial disaster of 2008. Maybe one of the most important stories of our lifetime, certainly economically. It, it, it had international implications. What caused that? Subprime mortgages. Can you think of anything more boring? I mean, mm -hmm. okay, you start talking about collateralized letters of obligation and debt, CDOs, CLOs. You go, okay, now you're starting... I'm starting to fade. My eyes are right. My eyelids are getting heavy. Right. It's, but it's an important story. So, some or news organizations don't do it. Some news organizations will do the story but make it short. You know, our Planet Money team did two hours, two one-hour shows called the Big Pool of Money, or was it the Giant Pool of Money? And they told the story through the eyes of people. A guy who should have never gotten a subprime mortgage. He never should have gotten a mortgage. He never thought he could get a mortgage. He had terrible credit. He didn't have a job. It was this whole list of things. And he said, I never thought I would get it. And they interviewed him, and it was a very personal story. And then they talked to the person who sold him the mortgage. And then they talked to the mortgage broker who sold it to the banks. And then they talked to the banks that broke it up into various tranches. And it was told as a story of people and, and what they were doing. And... It was riveting. I listened to all two hours. Would I have read for two hours on this story? No. Would I have read an hour? No. Would I have, would I have spent 15 minutes? 
maybe. On a good day, if I was heavily caffeinated. <laughs> so I think that's our mission. The most important stories in the world told well. John Bowden, thank you. Thank you, Bob. For being on the public morality today. <laughs> I loved it. That was Jarl Moan. Stay tuned as Wake Forest political science professor Katie Herringer joins us to discuss political discourse. been following the 2016 presidential campaign, there was a good chance that between the candidates, their surrogates, and commentators, the pursuit for a judicious political discourse was frustrating, if not a painful undertaking. But where is the political discourse in lieu of history? Joining us to answer that question is Professor Katie Harringer. Professor Harringer is the Department Chair of Political Science at Wake Forest University. Professor Harringer, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you. It's great to be here. One of your areas of focus is deliberative dialogue. And uh, so let's begin with you providing us with a Reader's Digest version of deliberative dialogue, what it is, and if implemented, what are the potential benefits? Right. So deliberative dialogue is a sort of way of talking about um, really anything that you want to talk about, but I'm most interested in how we might talk about politics and policy using it, that I think sort of you can contrast to debate in the sense that it's designed to try to find sort of two things, greater understanding across difference in terms of why people disagree, and then whether there's common ground for action to move forward. And so basically it's a moderated conversation where there's some ground rules or rules of engagement for discussion and where um, the moderator sort of takes you through a process of considering fairly each of the points of view that are on the table. So what does deliberative dialogue look like in a culture that places, um, in my view, uh, inordinate reliance on certainty, preferring to view issues in terms of black and white, because it sounds like there's some nuance and some gray area that, that you have to embrace if you're going to do that policy justice. Yes, I think that's right. In fact, I think it's, it's a methodology really designed to get people to recognize uncertainty <laughs> and also to recognize that, that there's trade-offs with every sort of position one takes, right, that, that you may that you're really preferencing some values over other with each position. And so one of the things that deliberative dialogue is designed to do is to try to surface the values that tend to lie under our policy disputes, where we tend to talk about them as if everyone knows this is true or everyone knows that's true, and to recognize that, well, really, <laughs> in policy debate, the thing is, if you value this, that may be true. And if you value something else, then another policy would be the better thing. To pursue, so it's it's designed to try to surface that value conflict that underlies policy disputes, but it does imply that there's there's not one right answer. Well, that right there takes us out of the 21st century. Oh yeah, it's countercultural. <laughs> <laughs> it's completely countercultural. <laughs> well, 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 let's move the conversation ever so slightly to to the current political discourse that, that's sort of dominating the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, 
You know, it's so often we hear language such as um, how abhorrent someone, uh, this particular discourse may be, and it's different than any other discourse. But when you look at sort of our political discourse historically, what is the current um, exchange lie? You know, I, the other example that people frequently point to in our history of, of kind of debased hmm. um, dialogue is, of course, around the Civil War. And the you know people in Congress were beating each other up with sticks and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> and you know I uh, usually point out that so when people say, well, it's not as bad as a civil war, I say, yeah, but look what happened. we killed each other for four years. <laughs> That's not really the standard we want to use. <laughs> I you know I think it's, certainly it's always been the case that there have been people who have used. Um, crass and abusive language in politics. I, I don't think that that's a new thing. I do think that it's magnified because of the role of media and of social media and of, um, you know, so it just reaches so many more people. And a lot of social media, because of its anonymity, also encourages that. It's much harder when you're looking someone in the face to be extremely ugly um, than it is when you have that anonymity that the medium gives you. And so in, in that sense, I do think there's a degeneration of or what we would consider, you know, proper ways in which to disagree with each other. Taking into account um, your your initial illustration of deliberate dialogue, coupled with the um, uh, just your analysis uh, historically of sort of where we are uh, in our current discourse, um, in what direction would you like to see the country headed, uh, say, on January twenty first, twenty seventeen? Well, if I could wave my magic wand. Well, I just gave you that power, so the magic okay. wand is yours. <laughs> you know, I, I would like us to, and I, I hope we're already doing it, but, you know, the bombing of the uh, GOP place in Hillsborough this weekend sort of suggests that, you know, we are really on the brink of not being able to not just not understand each other, but show sort of a basic level of, respect for other people as human beings at at a level that's endangering people. And I think, you know, if we could all just sort of stop and take a deep breath and then say, you know, can we learn to talk to each other? It's not like we're going to ever agree with each other. We would live in a, you know, I don't want a one-party state. (laughs) Those are not democracies, right? In a democracy, we're going to have disagreement and we we should be battling over ideas. But the but we do have to stop doing, I think, is this kind of dehumanization of the person that we disagree with, that they're somehow, you know, not worthy of sort of respect as a fellow human being. Um, and so, you know, I think d- deliberative dialogue has a role to play, sort of movements towards, sometimes it's called civil discourse, you know, just trying to emphasize the value of trying to listen and to understand where someone else is coming from. I mean, we're pretty split country, and uh, it would behoove all of us to try to figure out why someone could have as misguided a position as we think the other side does. And for those of you who are just joining us, uh, uh, Professor Herringer uh, was referring to a bombing of um, a Republican headquarters in um, Orange, is it Orange County, North Carolina? Yes. Yes, in Orange County, North North Carolina. Um, to my knowledge at the time, no, no one was injured, but it, right. it, it, but it did occur over uh, the weekend. Any thoughts as to how we might begin that arduous journey that you sort of outlined just then? 
<laughs> well, you, you know, I mean, remember I, you still have the wand. You have the floor I'll and the wand. Still have the wand. <laughs> well, you know, I think it could start with the political parties um, doing a little bit of navel gazing <laughs> um, and thinking about sort of how did we get here and how do we step back from this brink. Um, but I also think that you know, elite organizations are going to tend not to do that unless they feel like there's some real, you know, that the people want it. And so I think there's a role for um, civil society and, you know, organizations, whether they're churches or universities or, you know, nonprofit organizations that try to bring people together around issues to try to provide opportunities for people to have a different kind of conversation and, and to try to hold their public officials accountable for engaging in it and listening to it as well. You know, I'm thinking about your earlier answer um, when, you, when you talked about just the level of information and access and how quickly we receive it. Um, I might add some of those sources are not always credible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you have a culture that's being bombarded with, with the possibility uh, uh, uh of, of elections being rigged. Um, I, I, I think I just saw a recent poll to where there, there's a number of people who will not feel, if the, if the polls are correct, that um, Secretary of State Clinton is elected. There's a lot of people would feel that her election is not um, legitimate. It's, it's, it's pretty tough. Uh, yeah, and I, I mean, let me just say that if for some reason the polls are wrong and Donald Trump wins, I think there's going to be a huge percentage who think the same thing, right? Right. I mean, it's sort of, both ways. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so that you're absolutely right. So that that actually seems to be a a, a, a difference. I, I don't recall in my lifetime where whoever won, whether I voted for them or not, that that I actually questioned the legitimacy of, mm-hmm. of the person being in office. And and so with that sort of culture, that sort of climate, how do we even begin to get to this place um, that could move the country forward sort of out of the malaise that we're in, so to speak? Yeah, so I mean, I do think that's where I say I think that, that some leadership on the part of the parties, members of Congress, whoever wins the White House, is going to be important to try to do that. Um, but I also, you know, you're pointing to what I think is a very serious problem in terms of the health of a democracy, and that is if you lose the notion that there's a legitimate opposition, you know, that's the, that's what happens in authoritarian systems where democracies fall apart, right, where where you um, people end up in the streets after an election as opposed to saying, well, let's hunker down and figure out what we did wrong so we can come back and try to win next time, right? That's that's a respect for the, the opposition. You know, early in our history, we did not have that in the United States. The, um, you know, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, when the Federalists lost power, they were sure that was the end of the Republic. But over time, what we learned <laughs> was that that wasn't the end of the Republic, right, and that we could have um, legitimate opposition, the Civil War being our one exception, and then we killed each other. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we really have a lot of rhetorical work to do on what it means to live in a pluralistic democracy and what it means to lose an election. <laughs> you, you would think by now we, we, we would have some, uh, uh, some experience of what it means to lose an election. We would have to be recalibrating that in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were talking about, about the Federalists, I, I, I immediately thought, I wonder if the Whigs had that same conversation, too, mm-hmm. that the Republic was over when, when they sort of faded into uh, oblivion. Mm-hmm. But... Um, 
if you're just joining us, we are talking with Professor Katie Harriger. Uh, she is the chair of politics and international affairs at Wake Forest University. Um, how did we, in your view, get on this particular path? Was it something momentous that happened, or, or, or was it um, death by a, a thousand cuts? How, how did we get here? Well, I, I say as a political scientist, I'm always going to go for death by a thousand cuts. <laughs> um, because it's always complicated. You know, a single a single explanation for anything is never is always one you should be suspicious of. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and so I think it's I would attribute it to a combination of factors. I mean, one is this media environment that we've talked about, and I think the um, the mediums that people are now getting most of their news from, whether it's television or sources on the internet are, you know, there's so many of them and they're highly polarized themselves. And so sort of cutting out their, finding their niche in the, in the media market means being more strident, um, more um, distinctive, you know, in terms of taking positions, more casting of the red meat in front of the particular slice of the audience that you're trying to get. Um, And so, and what we know is that human beings tend to like to have whatever they think reinforced and they don't like the discomfort created by having their views challenged. And so now that they have all these multiple sources to turn to, they actually are tending to turn to the ones that reinforce their particular views and values. And so that tends to harden people's positions because they're not in a media environment where they're having to deal with, you know, the cognitive dissonance of hearing something they don't want to hear. (laughs) And, and taking it in. And so it, it's both sort of how people consume media and also the content of media, I think. It, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, and, I, and then, you know, there's there's some other things that have to do with the way political parties have developed and the way that interests within parties have sort of captured the parties in ways that make both parties sort of more polarized um, ideologically. And then we have a two-party system and we're forced to pick one. <laughs> are, are we... Um... Some of that, what you described, seems to me, is really out of our control, and in that it that we I'm speaking of we the people that that when you have the special interests that that influence the parties, um, we're we're sort of the that leaves us to be the pawns to consume that information that uh, where the where the barrel's already been tainted. Yeah, I mean, what I try to do with with my students, for example, in my American politics class, is say. Look, I mean, in other words, trying to raise awareness of that fact that we tend to just find things that make us comfortable. And so I say, if you want to, if you, if your goal is to be a well-informed person, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, listen, listen to more things. Listen sometimes to something that you disagree with. Read a newspaper that has a editorial bias that is not your own. Just, you know, in other words, don't, don't. You do have choice. You know, consumers do have choice, and they can choose to to follow this pattern or they can choose to break the pattern. So, but I, you know, it's, it's work by individuals, I think, and it's civic education in terms of educating citizens. And then it's, you know, I think if the market for it changes, if people get so disgusted, they don't want to, they're not going to consume it. I think the, what's there will change. Now, now historically, um, while, and I certainly take your point um, with the, with the amount 
of, of coverage, you know, that we've had. But historically, we've always had, and I'm thinking at sort of the inception of the nation where there were Jefferson newspapers and mm-hmm. Hamilton newspapers. So, mm-hmm. so that just finding the information that fits with our preconceived notion, that in and of itself is not a new phenomenon. Am I, am I correct? Yes, I mean, yes, you're correct. It's not a new phenomenon. Okay, which one is it? <laughs> no. Yes, you are correct that it is not a new phenomenon. <laughs> so we've always done it, but I, so what, is the only difference that, that it's now just the level, the volume, the sheer volume? I think it's the volume, and it's also, I mean, you could think about volume in two ways, just the amount of it, but also the um, pitch of it. <laughs> um, that I think the competition has raised the, the noise of it all. Um, and the level of, I mean, and the degeneration of the level of discourse. And, I mean, I, I'll also say, you know, the mediums themselves have bias, if that makes sense. So, mm-hmm. you know, television, I also tell my students, don't watch television <laughs> or don't watch news on television, right? <laughs> because the bias of the medium itself is for visuals, it's for um, drama, you know, it's for the personal um, and it, it, so it's not really a reasoned medium. And newspapers, even if they were, you know, Jeffersonian Democrat newspapers or Republican newspapers, are still the written word has a kind of reason to it that's not. Tr- and you know, in the in the current mediums, the written word is how, how many characters does it take for Twitter? Is it, was it one fifty, one forty, something I, like that? You can tell I well, don't actually tweet. Well, and, and see, I'm, and I'm not too far behind you. you know. But you know that. That's it's a great medium for clever little uh, commentary, but it isn't one for for reason and thought, and I I think that that is different. Speaking with uh, Professor Katie Harriger, um, following up, there, there, there's a quote when I was preparing to speak with you that jumped out at me, and I said I, I just got to have her comment on this quote in, in the context of the conversation that we're having um, from. Mr. Thomas Paine says to argue with a person who has renounced reason and whose philosophy consists of consists in holding humanity in contempt is like administering medicine to the dead. <laughs> now, I've always held that um, Paine's analysis sort of invoked um, an intellectual triage, um, if you will, but. I don't know if we could afford to do that today. I mean, I, I think that what you're saying we have to do, we, we can't just leave people by the wayside. How do we, how do we reach out, given, given the cacophony that you've already referred to? Right. You know, I mean, a lost um, art is the art of listening. <laughs> and, it's very, and I think it's particularly hard to listen when people are, you know, spewing hateful things. Um, but sometimes people are spewing hateful things because they think no one's listening, if, if that makes sense. In other words, they feel like if I don't yell, like here I am and no one hears what I'm worried about, so I'm going to yell. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think we all, on sort of both sides of the political divide, need to try, and I think listening is the way you do that, to try to find out what's under all the anger, you know, what's under all the hate that we hear that might be something that we actually all care about it's pretty hard to do that because we can't hear it because of how loud and how angry it is people people tend to shut down i mean thomas Paine has a point (laughs) but i think i agree with you that you know if if we're whoever wins you know 45 percent of the rest of the public is distraught um we need to do some listening 
Right. You know, then then there is um, uh, this whole pushback uh, against um, political correctness, and, and 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 I I just hear that what you were saying earlier is about that listening, which which an authentic listening uh, confers some level of respect, mm-hmm. but then polit- but then this pushback against political correctness. Um, says well, you don't. I don't have to be respectful. I just say it however I want to say. How how, how do you see that? I mean, I have some sympathy for the. You know, I teach civil rights and civil liberties too, and you know, I I have sympathy for the position that we are monitoring language too much. Mm-hmm. Right? But I mean, there's another example where the people who say I want to say what whatever I want to say, and I have the freedom to say it. You know, as I. <laughs> told my son when he was growing up, yes, you had the freedom to say it, but you also need to be prepared to deal with the consequences <laughs> of what you say in terms of either totally alienating someone who might have been your ally um, or just having people not listen to you, right, because they can't hear you because of the language that you're using. So I don't think there's a – I think there's a difference between saying people can't say things and saying, you know, we'd, we would be hearing each other better if we said them differently, and to the extent that that language policing is feels like policing, I think it's a it's a dangerous thing, and I can see why people push back against it. To the extent that discussion about language and words is part of our dialogue about how to better understand each other, like if you call me this, I can't hear you, <laughs> <laughs> but if you respect this about me, I can hear you. You know, if we can have those kinds of conversations, that's all for the better. What I'm taking from your last answer is there is no um, asterisk in the Constitution which says Congress cannot abridge uh, uh, the freedom of consequence. Right. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> or as I used to tell my son, the First Amendment protects you from Congress, not your mother. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Katie Harriger, uh, Chair of Politics and International Affairs, Wake Forest University, I want to thank you for being on the public rally today. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you. That was Professor Katie Harriger. Coming up. My closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. In the words of George Bernard Shaw, Democracy is a device that ensures we shall be governed no better than we deserve. I often refer to Shara's quote because I find it to be the most succinct and accurate analysis of our democratic republic form of government. But the reality show, masquerading as the 2016 presidential election, should force us to ask, do we deserve this? Now, prior to offering a reflexive response, consider my definition of the pronoun this. This is not a critique on Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, but one directed at us. Do we, the people, deserve this spectacle? Cynically speaking, I say we do. We have failed the salami test miserably. Imagine if you had a stick of salami and a traveler stopped by and asked if he could have half. You immediately say no. So instead, the traveler takes only a sliver. Because it's not enough to care, you say nothing. But over the next few days, they repeat the process to a point that what's left is no longer worth concerning yourself. 2016 presidential election may have brought us to this precipice. 
It's not Fort Sumter, where a shot was fired and a country was immediately placed on the verge of being torn asunder. It has been more methodical, seemingly harmless in the moment, but collectively has worked in tandem with other so-called innocuous episodes, and the result is a divided nation, some hopeful, but a larger majority either nihilistic or close to it. When did party become more important than country? When did we become a nation that is only bothered by statements coming from the candidate we do not support, in addition to being fortified by the news source that corresponds with our pre-existing beliefs? Part of the current general election tradition is to anticipate the arrival of the October surprise. We've embraced obstruction as a viable tactic for doing the people's business. When did governing become a zero-sum game? When did we reach the point where the same party must occupy the White House, have a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, and a solid majority in the House in order to conduct the people's business? Is the facto fiat our only option? We have somehow commingled the definitions between patriotism and nationalism. If we can agree that patriotism is love and devotion of country, how does that differ from nationalism? Simply stated, nationalism finds its roots in naivete. It does not question and embraces a form of certainty that makes it vulnerable to the seductive impulses of nativism. Patriotism embraces dissent, which is the oxygen of our democracy. It places the overarching values of the country over the short-term interests of the party. The hopeful or tragic reality remains. Whichever road we choose, George Bernard Shaw is right. A tenuous place to be in our pursuit of a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcast, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.